You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. Good morning again, Redemption. So this morning is a, uh, it's a bit of a fun message because we're going to talk about science and the Bible. We're going to go back to the very first chapter of the scriptures, which is like this huge battleground. Um, And I remember being a high schooler and wanting to like argue with my Sunday school teachers about evolution. Um, And I'm going to solve all those problems here for you this morning. Like, that, see, that sounds a little ambitious, and I'm sort of joking, but also I'm not at all joking. Okay, here, here's the thing. Anybody know what genius is? Yeah, I remember it used to be rap genius, and now it's just genius. If there were a genius explainer for the context of Genesis, um, we would not have the battles that we have about age of the earth and its evolution in contrast with the scriptures and can we trust the creation narrative that I spent so long reading for y'all just a moment ago. Like none of that would need to exist if we just understood the context. It's, it's kind of like a good diss track. Any, anybody into diss tracks? Okay, um, hey, hey, bear with me for a minute, right? If, if you're gonna understand um, Nas's song, Ether, then you have to understand Jay-Z's song that went after Nas before that, saying, oh, you only get one hot album every 10 years, come on, give me a break. And you have to know the aftermath, that Jay-Z like stole Nas's baby mama and then rapped about it in such like an embarrassing way that Jay-Z's mom came to him and said, hey, you have to publicly apologize. This is beyond the, like, without some context, like, you listen to this one song by Nas, and you're like, I am completely lost, and this is just another random rap song. Okay, now, my point is not to educate you on the finer points of early 2000s rap battles. Um, My point is to say there is a parallel that without context, there's all kinds of things we can't understand. Right? We know this when we talk about illusions. We know this when we talk about parodies, right? To go down the rap trail one more time. You can't understand Amish paradise without understanding that there's gangsta's paradise. But honestly, you can't really understand what gangsta's paradise is really doing and all about without realizing that Stevie Wonder won his third, in, in four years, his third Grammy for album of the year for a song called Pastime Paradise that most of y'all don't even know exists. Um, which is the same, like, hook, the same music, the same title as Coolio is going to use and later on Weird Al is going to steal. Here's my simple point. 
Context changes the way we understand things. When we come to Genesis 1, all we basically need to do is realize that it's not written in a vacuum, it's written in context. So, Genesis 1 is the story about the creation of the world, right? But, but it didn't come down, even in its own telling, to Adam and Eve. It's not like Adam and Eve were created, and then on that first day, God said, okay, now get out your pens, and let me give you the science textbook that's going to last the next however many millennia. Like, that's, that's not what happened. What, what happened, even the view of the Old Testament, like, even the view of, like, faithful Israelites, even the, in the minds of faithful Jews and Christians throughout the ages, is that Genesis 1 comes down and is written by Moses sometime in the middle of the second millennium B.C., Right, so sometime, even taking a conservative estimate, like think 14 to 1500 BC, which is a time period with all sorts of other cultures, with all sorts of other like countries, with all sorts of other stories and suppositions about how the world got started. That's where we're going this morning. Um, now, uh, w- with, with all of that said, let me actually... Um, Give, give one aside. Um, this sounds pretty science-y, pretty history-y, pretty like Bible nerdy, and, and it is, and yet let me, let me give you two things. One is if you like um, crazy stories, whether that's like soap operas and telenovelas, or it's like Marvel and Avengers, like this morning is entirely for you. I'm going to um, summarize uh, one of the ancient Near Eastern texts, which is like the craziest story that I've ever heard, and I'm going to try to do it a little bit of justice, and it's going to be uh, a little crazy. Get ready. Um, number two is none of this is just for informational purposes. Okay, so, so for all of, the, all of the facts, all the context, all of the, hey, let me teach you about the 1500s BC. Let me teach you about Mesopotamia and Sumeria and Acadia and Babylonia. Like, like we, we're going to get into some of that. I, I'm sorry, but, I, but here it, it matters. It matters because what Genesis 1 is telling us is really not the story of creation in the way that you would think about the story of creation. What it's actually telling us is why we're here. What it's actually telling us is what the purpose of humanity is. And knowing the purpose of humanity is actually the very thing that gives you an ability to understand what your individual purpose in 2022, I like I have to think and make sure that's the year. Yes, in 2022 in Houston, Texas, sitting right here, what does God want from me? What is God's purpose for my life? Genesis 1 is actually the place to turn to start to understand, so bear with me through some of the boring history, through some of the like crazy comparative history, I promise, well, at least I think, this will be worth it. Okay, last caveat before we get started is maybe I'm just an argumentative person, but like I already mentioned when I was in high school, I loved arguing with my Sunday school teachers uh, at least a few Sundays a year that I went to church, I loved arguing with them about evolution. They'd come to a text like this and they'd be like, well, God says seven days, it only counts up, it adds all the years from the beginning of creation to now, the earth is only 6,000 years old or 10,000 years old, or um, like, I, what, what about dinosaurs? I don't know what to tell you about dinosaurs, there's just a trick of the devil. He just buried them in the ground to like make everyone else feel confused and make them believe science, which is not true, and I'm sorry, but God says it, that settles it. 
uh, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, and that's like the end of the conversation. And I'm like, wait, so you believe in a God who's big enough to create all these things, but not a God who's big enough to use things like evolution? Like, and, and like, it, it, I, I, I didn't know anything else about the context, but I felt very deeply that there was some sort of battle between science and religion, and in my sophomore, junior, senior year of high school heart, I was like, uh, no thanks religion, I'm all in on science. Now, um, a couple decades later, I still love science, um, and yet somehow I'm a preacher. That's not because I don't believe the Bible, um, it's just because I think the Bible is saying something different than we naively read it to say. Now, there, there's, there's a naive reading out of context, which is really unhelpful and really wrong. And then there's a naive reading in context by the original audience, which is pretty likely to be true. We don't want our naive reading. We basically want their naive reading. And that's all we can approximate with all of the context. Okay. Um, if you're sitting in here this morning or watching us later online, um, and you have really strong feelings about creation, about the age of the earth, about whether evolution is true or not, L- let, me j- let me just put my own cards on the table um, in, the front, in, in the first place. I, I basically think science is right, um, and I basically think uh, science and the scriptures actually aren't at odds with each other. Okay, um, I say basically because I have weird philosophical um, nits to pick about the limitations of what we can know and the things we can know in the past and whether there's outside actors. We can get super philosophical and I can go to my weird places. I'm not going there this morning. But, but if you're on the other side of this equation and you're like, no, I basically think evolution is wrong and I want to believe in young earth creationism, um, let me just tell you that that's not the view I'm gonna take here today, but also like, I'm happy you're here. I hope you don't hear anything that I'm saying here as condescending to you, mean to you, alienating to you, whatever to you. Um, I promise that the Jesus you believe in and love is the same as the Jesus I believe in and love. And as much as you think you are um, obeying and honoring the scriptures, I think I'm obeying and honoring the scriptures too. And sometimes we just disagree and that's okay. For me, the argument doesn't really come down to science, and it doesn't really come down to uh, what I'm going to call bad readings of the text, and I don't mean that to be condescending, but I just think they're bad readings of the text that are out of context because they're making the text say something that it doesn't mean and didn't intend. Okay, so our naive reading of the text that says the earth is 6,000 years old, there are no dinosaurs and no evolution, is not what the text says, it is not what the text meant to say, and was not what the text is about. Why am I so sure? Let's jump in, Genesis 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's kind of the thesis statement. So we're going to go from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through chapter 2, verse 3, although I'm going to skip some verses here and there uh, just to kind of move us along in a speedier fashion. This is the thesis statement. In the very beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. It was functionless. It was chaotic. It was useless. There's something already in view in verse 2. Right? It's, it's not telling us in, in this verse about creation out of nothing. I believe that God created all that exists out of nothing. I firmly believe that. That's just not a kind of thing that 
ancient Near Easterners were thinking about. Okay, I'm, I'm going to use the, the phrase ancient Near East and ancient Near Easterners a lot this morning, and all I mean by that is the people who lived in this time and in this culture and this geographical region. So when you think about Moses and Israel in the mid-second millennium BC, when you think about their neighbors that live in present-day Iraq, which is like um, Acadia, Samaria, Babylonia, all of these places, all I'm thinking about is them all the way down to the Egyptians. We have all sorts of their writings, even their mythological and religious writings from this time, just like we have uh, of, of Israel and the Old Testament. So when I say ancient Near East, I just mean their context. Okay, so ancient Near Easterners were not thinking about, were not talking about, and I'm going to show you a text that shows this. When they talked about creation, they're not talking about creation from nothing. They're talking about taking some stuff and making it useful. Taking the stuff and making it useful was in their minds creation. Taking the stuff and making it useful was in their minds more essential, more fundamental, more interesting than where the stuff came from in the first place. This text doesn't argue against the fact that God created in the first place. It's just not the point. And, and this is actually important in what we're going to see here in just a minute. This functionality, assigning order, assigning purpose, assigning function, is what Genesis 1 is all about. So it starts off by saying the earth was formless and void. There was something there, but it had no function. It was useless. It was chaotic. And darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Okay, here's where we're going to pause, and I'm going to do a long, deep dive into an ancient Near Eastern text because of two words here in verse 2, deep and waters. Okay, because we read over this and we're like, I don't know, there's one kind of water and there's another kind of water. And we're like, I guess that's just what there was, was there were two kinds of water, and apparently God organized the waters. That, that is what's going on here, but, but when we read it without context, we miss that in the, in the cultural milieu of the ancient Near East, all of the creation myths started with chaotic deeps and waters. Okay, in fact, let me give you one kind of nerdy thing. This word deep comes from the Hebrew word tahom or taom. Um, there's a goddess in um, Babylonia like one of chief Israel's like chief opponents that they're arguing with, that they do battle with, that they're like um, intellectually contesting with, like who's superior and more importantly, whose God is superior. The, 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 the story that I'm about to read you from Babylon is all about this goddess named Tiomat, Tahom, Tiomat. They are the same word. Here's my point. This word deep and the word waters means nothing to you, but in the context, everybody else is like, oh, this is actually starting. Our creation story is starting just like the creation story of the ancient Babylonians. It's talking about chaos, taom, or tiomat, tiomat, and waters. Okay, so let's do super deep dive. I'm going to tell you the story of, of Anuma Elish. Now, I told you already this is going to sound a little boring and super nerdy, but I promise, um, hang with me, it's going to get crazy. Like in uh, the best way, there's a bunch of kids here, I will uh, be polite, I promise. Um, 
Okay, uh, we will put up on social media tomorrow, um, Facebook, Instagram, uh, we don't really use Twitter anymore. That's not an Elon Musk thing, it's just nobody engages with us on Twitter. Um, but we will, we will put up there a list of resources. Um, one of the really helpful things to see is that I'm not making any of this up, and there are resources. So Genesis 1, I read it to you um, at the start of the service, and it took me, I don't know, five or six minutes. Uh, there is a story known as the Enuma Elish, or Enuma Elish, like we just make up pronunciations of all these things, because nobody speaks these languages anymore. Um, there, there is this ancient creation myth from Babylon, written in a language called Akkadian, I know y'all don't know what Akkadian is, and maybe you've never even heard of Akkadian, or if you have, congratulations. But Akkadian was the lingua franca. It was the language that dominated the ancient Near, Eastern, ancient Near East because Babylon was the dominant force. Everybody was speaking Akkadian, writing in Akkadian, and we have all these texts, including uh, the Enuma Elish, which is seven chapters long. They call them seven tablets because that sounds cooler, but it's seven chapters. It's short chapters. You can read it in... I don't know, half an hour if you're motivated. You can look up, you can just Google text of Enuma Elish, but on Instagram tomorrow, we will source a bunch of books that you can buy that have good translations and good notes on all sorts of texts, including Enuma Elish, but also... Um, I'm not even going to list all of them, but there's Memphite theology from Egypt, there's uh, Gilgamesh, there's... Uh, like dozens and dozens of these texts. I'm selecting one because it's the craziest and the most entertaining and the most detailed and parallels us here uh, very importantly, okay? But, but all I'm suggesting is that even for you, if you're not an expert, you are a lay person, there are good resources out there that you don't have to memorize or understand every single piece of every single thing that I'm gonna summarize for you this morning. I would really just wish I had like two hours and could just like out loud read the Enuma Elish to you, but uh, I don't think anybody would come back next week. Okay, um, here's how the Enuma Elish starts. When the heavens had no name, when the underworld had no name, when no gods had yet been named. Okay, so the Enuma Elish is about to be a creation story. Actually, it's about to be a story about um, a battle for the Tablet of Destinies, which like sounds super comic booky, but like they're going to do battle over the Tablet of Destinies and who gets to hold the Tablet of Destinies to determine like world course of events and that's what Enuma Elish is all about. But the way they determine who gets to hold the Tablet of Destinies is they gotta see, that they're gonna do battle and then they're gonna create. So it's, it's a creation account from ancient Babylon, but the creation account starts with saying, hey, nothing was created. So our creation account says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth when the, the earth was formless and void, when there was just chaotic deep and waters and nothing had yet been formed, and we kick off into the creation story. Their creation story says, hey, when nothing had yet been named, this is really important because without this piece of data, when we come back to Genesis 1 later and we see God naming things, we don't understand that naming is part of creating. And without understanding that, even as, right, this, this feels a little like unimportant. Naming means creating. Apparently, he got this from some text in Babylon. No, no, this is really important. Without understanding that naming is part of creating, you misunderstand Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and Genesis 3. You misunderstand sin. You misunderstand human purpose. 
I promise we'll get back there. When the heavens had no name, when the underworld had no name, when no gods had yet been named, i.e. when the sky hadn't been created, when the underworld hadn't been created, when all the like uh, plethora of gods hadn't been created, there's a fight because there's a bunch of noisy kids and no one can sleep. Okay, so, so there's, there are these, there's this um, father god and mother god. The mother god, her name is Tiamat. Her name is Chaotic Deep. The father god, his name is Apsu, which is like uh, clear waters. So all of a sudden we have, from the beginning, there is this mingling of waters of Tiamat and Apsu. And we come to Genesis 1-2 that we just read and we're like, wait, in the beginning there's chaotic mingling of depths and clear water. Wait, what? And, and we see in the context, it's not that Genesis 1 is uh, directly quoting or using as source material this text from the, the Akkadians, um, but it is referencing it and alluding to it almost like a diss track. Basically what Genesis 1 is, is it is a diss track in the face of all the competing ideologies and mythologies of the world saying, yeah, you said it like this, but let me tell you how it really is. My God's better, my God's in control, and he does things way different than yours does. We see this because of terms like Tiamat and Apsu, mother god and father god. This, this mother god and father god are these gods, but they start having lots of baby gods. And the baby gods have baby gods, and the baby, baby gods have baby, baby, baby gods. And all of a sudden, you've got like this, this whole pyramid scheme of gods. But the original mother god and father god aren't having it because all the other gods are super chaotic, Actually, what they say is these other gods are so crazy and so, so noisy that I cannot rest. I cannot sleep. And so mother God and father God have an argument about, hey, do you think we should just like get rid of them? Should we just kill all of our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and do away with all the other gods because I want to rest? Dad says yes. Mom says no. Which you would think mom's going to like win, but uh, before they do anything, great-great-grandson hears word, hey, mother God and father God want to come and kill all of you. And so great-great-grandson says, good luck with that. I'm stronger and bigger and better. And there's this, the, that God is named Ea. I'm only going to name a couple of the gods, Tiamat and Ea, you need to remember. This Ea god hears that his great-grandfather wants to kill him, and so instead, he kills the father god. Tiamat is strangely fine at this moment, because she's like, well, I guess he had it coming to him. What Ea does with that father god's now corpse is... Apparently, it's a really large body, and he turns the body into a master bedroom. And in that master bedroom, with his new wife, he conceives another young god named Marduk. His third name. These are the only important ones. Tiamat, Ea, and Marduk. Ea killed father god, used father god's body as a bedroom to conceive his new God of gods named Marduk. Now, before we go any further, you need to know that Marduk becomes the chief god for Babylon. 
When we tell the story of Babel later on in Genesis, really what we're doing is we're doing comparative religion again, more trash talk about, hey, that temple in Babylon to your God Marduk that you claim reaches to the sky, God has to look way down and say, where is it? Oh, yeah, I think I can kind of see it. All of that Tower of Babel story in Genesis chapter 11 is about Marduk. Marduk is this God that supposedly was conceived in the bedchambers of Father God's body who had been killed by Ea, Ea and his wife. Marduk is really big and really bad, and his grandpa decides, hey, you know what? Marduk deserves the best of all toys. I will tell you right now that grandparents will ruin your lives with the toys they give your kids. I'm teasing because my mother-in-law is here and I love her and she loves my son almost as much as I love my son. But this grandfather gives Marduk a brand new toy by inventing wind. And he gives the wind to Marduk as a toy. But then Marduk starts throwing the wind around and tormenting all of the rest of the gods with them so that none of them can rest anymore. Nobody's getting any sleep, and it's all because of this rapscallion, young, like, uh, bam-bam-type God who is bigger than he should be, more powerful than he should be, more important than he should be, and now Grandpa has given an, uh, a dangerous toy of the winds, and they can't sleep, and they are, quote, furious with rage. Okay, so, so far, the Babylonian story of the creation of the world is... Yeah, parents got super sleep deprived and were furious and created the whole world because of it. And all the parents of young children were like, can I get an amen? So Grandpa gives the four winds to Marduk as a toy. Marduk torments everyone else. They can't sleep. They're furious with rage. And so everyone else gets together and goes back to Tiamat mother God and says, hey, you know what we should do is we should go to war against Marduk and kill him so we can all finally get some rest. So they make schemes. They have this uh, like lower mother God who can invent and give birth to anything she wants. So they hatch plans. They birth schemes. They invent new invincible weapons. They give birth to monster serpents. They, give, they make dragons whose blood is poison. To these dragons, they give the glories of the gods and the auras of the gods. They create these 11 monsters, these hairy hero men who are going to do battle for them. They're lion monsters and lion men, scorpion men, mighty demons, fish men, and bull men. So in getting ready for this battle to kill the young lad with the winds that's causing so much ruckus that nobody can sleep, mother god Tiamat appoints a new leader, Kingu, and exalts him as the greatest. She marries him and she gives him the tablet of destinies and straps it to his chest. She says, now your command will be unchanged and eternal and we end act one. Tablet two, Tiamat goes to Ea and says, surprise, it's battle time. 
Right, so Tiamat and all of her people have been inventing all of these monsters and dragons and weapons and all of this. And then she shows up to Ea, the father of Marduk, and says, your kid is causing all sorts of ruckus. We are here to kill whoever we have to kill to get some sleep in this place. Ea is so terrified by mother god Tiamat, who is apparently terrifying, he just sits down in speechless horror. He can't say anything to her. And eventually, he goes and schemes with his father and says, maybe we can use a magic spell. And so Ea and his dad say, let's try magic. They go out, they try the magic spell on Tiamat, but the spell does nothing because she's too strong and she has too big of an army. And so Ea and his father turn back in despair. So then Ea's grandfather and father say, well, let's try something else. You know, Tiamat, she's a mother god, she's a goddess, she's a woman. Okay, let, 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 me, let me do a little aside here. Um, I don't ever want to, like, make misogyny funny or make misogyny, like, the norm. Like, I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be that. I don't want to, like, counsel that. I don't want to permit that. That's not who we are and who we intend to be. But sometimes that is how the texts work. And so what I'm saying is not, like, recommending this as if it, this is the order of creation from the very beginning. Actually, we're going to come back and talk about gender roles from Genesis 1 in a couple of weeks. Um, but they basically say, well, she's a woman. Like, just go and stand before her and soothe her feelings. If you just, like, let her heart be eased, then maybe her rage would pass and she wouldn't kill us all. But apparently they try this, it does nothing, they get too terrified and they, they turn back because Tiamat is terrifying. All of her monsters and her consort, Kingu, so instead, they try to recruit someone else. This is Ea, his grandfather, his father, have like all failed at dissuading Tiamat from coming and killing Marduk and his mighty winds. So they decide, you know what we should do is instead, maybe we can recruit a champion. Like out of all the gods, who's big enough, bad enough, brave enough to go and challenge Tiamat because by the way, she's just a woman. Marduk says, I'll do it. Pretty sure I can defeat any woman, but, but here's the conditions. I will do it as long as when I win, you appoint me as the supreme of all gods. I will defend you, and then you will all serve me in fealty forever and ever and ever. So, um, they send gods to make the deal, Marduk makes the demand, Ea and his folks say, yeah, that sounds good to us. They go out, they decide, hey, uh, let's kind of recruit the other gods. Hey, here's the deal, Marduk is going to save us, we're gonna overthrow Tiamat, but here's the conditions, and they repeat, Marduk's gonna be in charge after that. Everybody agrees, they repeat it several times, I agree, I agree, I agree. They throw a giant feast, uh, they got fat and drunk, and they joyfully ordained destiny to Marduk their champion. That was tablet three. This is tablet four. So the assembly appoints Marduk, quote, the most important among the great gods. He has unrivaled power of destiny. He has supreme command. Here's what they declare, quote, your destiny, O Lord, shall be the foremost of the gods. If you command destruction or if you command creation, they shall take place. 
at your word, constellations will be destroyed. If you command again, constellations will come back intact. And then they send him to kill Tiamat. So Marduk, the Lord, is what they call him, the Lord, girds himself with great weapons. He clothes himself in fires. He gathers all the winds for destruction. Let me list out the winds because this is pretty bonkers. He gathers the south wind, the north wind, the east wind, the west wind, the ill wind, the whirlwind, the cyclone, the four ways wind, the seven ways wind, the destructive wind, and the irresistible wind, as well as a net. A net like he's going fishing. And he raised his greatest weapon, the deluge or the flood. And he mounted his chariot, the storm demon, which was pulled by these four terrifying horses with bared teeth. Finally, Marduk, with all of his terror, confronts Tiamat. There's swirling confusion because she uses her magic to confuse everyone, to put lies in their minds, to terrify them. Everybody starts to run off, but Marduk challenges Tiamat to a duel. Hey, let's just settle this. You and me, me against you. Let's do this and settle it forever. And quote, she turned in to a maniac. She shrieked loud in a passion because of the spell that Marduk was trying to cast over her. She's trying to cast a spell over him. Instead, he's pushing back that spell with a spell over her. Apparently, it's working. And so she, in her desperation, opens her mouth, this great depth of sea gods that she is, to try to swallow him like the sea does to all of us. But as she opens her mouth, he traps her in the net and he forces all of his wind into her belly. Her belly swells. He pulls out a bow and arrow. He shoots her. She pops. She dies. And he stands over her body. Marduk, having killed Tiamat, captures all of her allies, subdues all of her 11 monsters, and puts Kingu the one with all these unearned privileges and the tablets of destiny, puts him in chains. Then he goes back to Tiamat's body. He crushes her skull with a mace, slits her open. uh, Try to not be too graphic here. um, And lets the north wind carry her blood around as, quote, glad tidings of his victory. As he further inspects her dead body, trying to decide what to do with it, he fillets her like a fish, Um, One piece he puts over the top of the sky, and one piece he puts under the netherworld. He props the whole thing up with her rib cage. He wants to make sure that the waters don't escape, the waters above and the waters below. And he made a great sanctuary in the sky, and he placed Ea and Ea's father and another one of the gods as rulers in the sky. You stay over here, you stay over here, You stay over here. You're in charge. You're in charge. You're in charge. Tablet number five is Marduk clearly and in detail doing his acts of creation. He places the stars and constellations in the sky. He uses Tiamat's tail as the Milky Way to bind everything together. He gives orders to the moon. Here's when you march. Here's when you move. Uh, Here's how long a month is. Here's how long a year is. Marduk is creating. 
He himself reserves for himself the right to decide when the wind blows, when the rain falls, and when Tiamat's spittle is piled up as snow. And then he puts Tiamat's head down and begins to build the earth upon it. Her eyes become the source of the Tigris and the Euphrates. He stops up her nostrils. He turns parts of her into the mountains. He coils up her tail as the Milky Way. Uh, He spreads her out on top and a bottom and clears everything else out. Then all the other gods celebrate and worship Marduk and and declare that he alone has authority over all that he has made. Okay, so so far we have battle for Tablet of Destinies. Marduk wins the battle for Tablet of Destinies. Then he vanquishes the body, uses it to create the entire world. So we're walking on Tiamat under Tiamat because Mother Goddess, the chaotic deep waters have been organized into a place where we all can live. Now, Marduk, on hearing the gods celebrate him, tablet six, resolved to make artful things and proposes to make a thing made out of flesh and blood and bone to make a new kind of creation, the human being, let human or man be its name. I shall create humankind. Here's the express purpose, and and I quote, I shall create humankind. They shall bear the God's burden in order that we gods may rest. So over and over and over you have this theme of, man, we can't get any rest. I'm gonna kill you. You know what? Instead of killing each other, why don't we create humans and then we could all finally rest? Now, finally, Ea says to Marduk, actually creating this new kind of creature, the human, that's a fantastic idea, but how are you going to do it? I know if you kill Kingu, you can use his blood and his corpse to make humans out of. So they bound him, they held him, they imposed this punishment, they shed his blood. From his blood he made mankind. He imposed the burden of the gods and exempted the gods. He imposed that burden on the people and exempted the gods from having to do any more work. Now, the the job of the humans is to feed the gods, to entertain the gods, to move the gods around the country when they need moved, to do all the work that the gods need in their daily activities. Marduk put 300 gods in the sky and 600 gods in the netherworld, each in their place to rule. And then they built Marduk, a temple in Babylon where they feasted, they hold a big ceremony, they bless him, they name the bow that he had used to kill Tiamat, It's now the bow star, it's visible in the sky, and all the gods swore fealty to Marduk. They name him with 50 names and celebrate, and that's the end of the Enuma Elish. Okay, now, we just spent way too many minutes talking about this, like, ancient Akkadian text. It's a little interesting, maybe it was boring for y'all, but, like, I I love it. Um, Let me, let me pull out a couple of things just to summarize, because next what I want to do is given these themes, I want to very quickly move back to Genesis 1 and have a bunch of things click, and you'll say, oh, that's why it's there. Okay. So remember, first of all, this story about Marduk ends with celebration and worship. Marduk is the god of Babylon, This story is being told in Babylon as all the people are gathering around and they're like, praise Marduk, he's the best, he's the awesomest. They're telling a story of violence and chaos and bloodshed where he killed all of his rivals, used their blood to create the world, and now created humans to do all of his dirty work so he could finally get some rest. 
Now, remember, all of this started with Tiamat and the deep and this chaos. Also remember that what happened was creation wasn't Marduk making materials, it was him organizing materials, giving role and function to the materials. Okay, you stand here and rule here, you stand here and rule here, you stand here and rule here, I'll split this here, make this the sky, make this. This is creation. It's not coming up with, with the materials, it's using the materials and assigning functions and naming. This is how purpose and order comes in. By the way, in case I forget to say this later, this is the reason the Genesis 1, when you really come to it on these terms, you're like, this isn't talking about evolution or Big Bang or anything like that at all. Huh. It's talking about functional ontology and why things are the way they are. Not how they came to be, not how old this is, but like, how does this work? Let, let me give one more um, analogy here because I hope this will be helpful. Um, when you think about a computer, if like this computer didn't work, somebody could come up and say, is that a computer? And say, well, it's supposed to be. But it's really just a collection of parts. Actually, we do this in really weird ways that you can like print parts of guns online and they don't have to be registered. Now, as, as long as... Like, you have to assemble the whole thing in the end. It's not a gun until it's a gun. But uh, when you think about computers, it's not a computer until it's a computer. You have, like, a hunk of metal and some parts, maybe even some microchips, but, like, it's just materials until it works, and then it's a computer. When Genesis and when Enuma Elish, the story we just told, when they tell about creation, they're not telling about where did the materials come from. They're telling in their minds a much more important story. How do all the things function together? Who's the one that put it together and gave it function and gave it order and gave it purpose? Wait, I, I, I literally don't care where Apple got the parts. Unless it was like cobalt and there was like these child labor, you know, like, like may, maybe then I care. Um, sorry to our Apple employees. Uh, uh, but but that's, that, that's not the way we think about creating most things. That's not the way that they thought about creating the world. When they thought about creating the world, they're like, no, but when did the world become the world? When did the w- world like, start to function? Who, who's the one in charge of the function? Who gave it function? Who gave it purpose? And then their stories have to do with purpose and function and order just like ours does. It's beside the point to ask questions about Big Bang and evolution. That's the whole thing. Sometimes we very loosely summarize as well. Think about genre. Think about poetry. Think about narrative. The, the point of Genesis isn't to be a scientific textbook. That's basically, this is a much more detailed argument of why we know that with certainty. When you read this and then you come to Genesis 1 and you're like, oh, y'all aren't arguing about how old the earth is. Y'all are arguing about who's in control and what the nature and purpose of humanity is. That's what Genesis is telling us because that's what Enuma Elisha is trying to tell us. They're, they're different views. Now, remember, the humans in Enuma Elish were created to solve the gods' problems, to provide the gods with food, to serve while the gods ruled. The humans were created to make rest for the gods. Humans get no rest. Gods get all the rest, but only because humans are their slaves. The gods create by naming the gods create 
by naming and placing, including the sea monsters and the rulers in all the heavenly places and the skies. Okay, with all of that, let's pretty quickly read um, part of Genesis 1 back together. Okay, now there's this formless and void, there's chaos and deep, and then God said, verse 3, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he named night. There was evening, and there was morning on day one. Interestingly, a bunch of the ancient Near Eastern texts start with warfare, and they start with the genealogy of the gods. Ours starts with, yes, some chaos, but actually a pretty peaceful picture. This means something. This tells us who God is, the God that's in control, the God that created us, the only God who truly exists. This means something that he's creating in such a boring fashion. He names, he speaks, he orders, there it is. There's no cosmic battle, there's no cosmic warfare, he's not having to depose his rivals. Verse 6, then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let us separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse, separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. He didn't need the flesh of the deep because the deep wasn't a goddess. The deep wasn't his rival. He didn't need to kill her. He just told the deep, hey, some of y'all up there, some of y'all down there, let's create some order. And it was so. God called this expanse, this vault between waters and waters, he called it heaven, but heaven always means sky. When you see heaven in Hebrew or heaven in Greek, you can just substitute out in your mind, heaven means sky. Same way that uh, cielo in Spanish, we do this in a number of languages. In Hebrew and in Greek, heaven is sky. So God creates the sky by separating the chaotic deep, some above, some below. Water falls, water comes up. There's rivers, there's oceans, there's rain. And all of a sudden, there was evening and there was morning, a second day, verse 9. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place. Let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and gathering the waters, he called seas, and God saw that it was good. So God is naming and he is ordering, doing the exact same thing that the gods are claiming to do in the Enuma Elish, providing structure and function and order and giving names. This is, in a real sense, what Genesis 1 means when it says God created. It's not talking about he created from nothing. It's not saying that he didn't. I'm not saying that he didn't. I'm just saying when Genesis 1 says, here's the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, what it means when it says he created the heavens and the earth, he named the heavens and the earth. He ordered and structured and gave function to the heavens and the earth. And it gives all sorts of detail about how those functions work and no detail about the questions that we would ask, but they didn't ask. Let's skip the next section. Let's go to verse 14. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate day from night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. Let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern or rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. 
in Babylonian mythology, in Egyptian and Akkadian and Sumerian and all, all of the comparative theologies, these, these beings that are being placed in the sky to rule, that is the same thing that Marduk did when he created. He placed the gods in the sky and said, you rule here, Ea, you rule here, Enlil, and you rule here, uh, I forget the third one's name, Enki. Uh, and, and he placed them, and he ordered, and he gave function, and they ruled. And Genesis 1 contains none of that which speaks volumes through its vi- silence. Because instead of these being competitor gods, they're mere objects of creation. God says, you go there, you go there, you go there. And it was so. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on earth. And we're asking questions about, okay, so if he already created light from dark on day one, how is it only day four that he's putting the stars in the sky? How is there light if there's no sun? How is there light, right? And we ask the wrong questions. The point of the text is, wait, hang on. I'm telling you a story about who's in control and what they're trying to do. Don't get ahead of yourselves. There are all kinds of stories out in the world. This is ours. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern, to rule the day and the night, to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. Hey, all this is beautiful and peaceful. I'm not exhausted. I'm not angry. I'm not creating out of my animus towards my unruly sons and daughters. I'm creating out of abundance and peacefulness and benevolence. I'm naming and I'm giving rule, not to other gods, but to pieces of the creation. And it's so good. It was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. Let's skip down to verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. This isn't a gendered term. It really means human. But man, the name that ends up being for Adam, is just the word man. And both male and female are man. Both male and female are Adam in a weird way we'll go into in a couple of weeks. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God eventually blesses them and says, be fruitful and multiply. But the thing that I want to hang out on here for the last second is God created humans to rule. In the competing narratives where everybody else thinks, no, 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 God creates humans to serve. All of a sudden we hear the language from Jesus who says, no, 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 I'm not here to be served. I'm here to serve. And then we look at Genesis 1 and God's like, no, 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 no. I didn't make y'all to serve me. I made y'all to rule with me. And suddenly we're like, wait, what? What does God want from you in your day-to-day, everyday life? He wants you to rule over the cosmos together with him. To take ownership of the history that's being created along, like around you. 
So many of us have these like internalized things that what we think God wants from us is that we don't misstep, that we don't somehow anger him in a surprising way. I I don't know what God wants, but hopefully this is okay. I don't know, but I kind of did that thing and maybe I should feel good. And like we get, what does God want from me? And it's this like paralyzing thing. When we go back to the beginning and God's like, what do I want from you? I want you to like stand up and make some choices and use your brains and use your lives and use your autonomy and use your authority. I want you to rule with me over the cosmos. Skip down. Let's finish with chapter two, verse one. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts, not the gods, not the competitor gods, but the things that went in the heavens and the skies were created and finished. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested. All the other gods in the world are worried about, you're too annoying to them for them to rest. You're too much burden for them to rest. Actually, the same theme that like a bunch of the younger gods are chaotic and annoying, and the gods want to kill the like young annoying gods for being too noisy. Actually, that's the same thing that they later say in their flood narrative. The humans are so noisy, none of us can sleep. There are way too many of them. Let's kill them. Our God says, I don't need y'all to go away for me to rest. I need y'all to be fruitful and multiply. I hope there's tons of you. Fill the earth. Rule with me. I can rest anyway. And then God blessed the seventh day and he sanctified it. Babylonians cursed the seventh day. It was a day of bad luck. Seventh, 14th, 21st, 28th of every month. And on it, because in it, God rested from all his work, which God had created and made. Okay, so let's, let's wrap up with, with these two big picture statements. Um, if you're super bored, super tired, um, here's, here's really what I want you to take away from um, this morning. is not, I can retell Anuma Elish, or I'm like, I got a movie idea. I'm going to Hollywood. Here we go. That, that's not my point. If you do it, I would come and see it. Absolutely. I'm not even a comic book, book, book guy, but um, the two things I really want you to take away are who is God? Genesis 1 is so often perverted and twisted and fought about in ways that we entirely miss what it's telling us. That God is hospitable. That he made a place for us. That he like decided, I want to throw a huge party with a ton of food and a ton of drink and a ton of people who are going to rule together with me forever and ever and ever. I'm going to create a world full of peace and rest and shalom. And he blesses it. If our God has put all of that in place, all of these things are good things. By the way, he won't let any of these things lose its function permanently, which is actually how the early church, like think Athanasius in the fourth century. I know you were just thinking it. Oh yeah, Athanasius in the fourth century. This is how the early church talked about salvation was a restoral of function and the fact that God would never give up on the good creation that he had started. Who is God? He is fantastically good. And why do humans exist? To rule this cosmos. Not to escape and go to heaven, but to rule, to reign, to subdue, to co-create, even to name. Later on, 
In chapter two, as Brandon read last week, after God names and names and names, i.e. he creates and creates and creates, he creates Adam and Eve, and you know what he has Adam do? Name this one, name this one, name this one, name this one. Create, 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 create. God invites Adam into the work of creation. Together with our fantastic God, each of us has been called in to the continuing act of creation, create a cosmos that's worth living in, a history that's worth being proud of. Let's live in with our breath, which is really his breath, with our authority, which is really his authority, all because we have a creator God who's benevolent and good and loves us. Let's pray. God, is this true that this is how you created us and why you created us? Um, Are you good? Do you want to be our partners? Are you benevolent and hospitable? Are you making a place for us? Is creation good? Is climate change bad? God, have mercy on us. Hear us as we sing to you and worship you, our hospitable, fantastically good God. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor, or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.